to the book of 1 Peter. Very challenging book, encouraging book. Some people wonder about this book, but there's some obvious things even right from the very beginning. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, we know God tells us who the human author is. He tells us who are the, the readers of this book. So look at verse 1. We, we see that Peter, the Apostle Peter, he describes himself as an Apostle of Jesus Christ. He is the human author whom the Holy Spirit used to write this book. I hope you know a few things about Peter, because when you know something about the, the human author of this book, it helps you understand where he's coming from and what he's writing about. You know Peter was a fisherman, hard-working fisherman, worked there in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. So he, he was kind of the spokesman of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, and of course he did come to faith in Christ. Yes, he denied Jesus Christ, but he was, he was one of those guys who, he wavered yes, but we see in the book of Acts that Peter was a man of great faith in Jesus and put his life on the line for Jesus. If you wonder what an apostle of Jesus Christ is, it's just one who has been sent with a commission. Jesus commissioned Jesus, or, or Peter with the, this gospel, this good news. He was a, a great leader in this church in the early days. The readers are, you notice, the exiles, because it says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and it names various areas that are in uh, modern-day Asia there. These exiles, by the way, some Bible translations call them strangers. <laughs> These are just resident aliens. They're in a foreign land. And by the way, this was true politically as well as spiritually. And you say, how were how they exiles or strangers politically? Well, these were Jews, and they were away from their fatherland. It was also true spiritually because, as it is with all true believers in Jesus Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. As the song says, this world is not your home. You're just passing through. And you'll see the word dispersion there in verse 1 as well. That just means that they were scattered or dispersed, just as you might do if you're planting seed. If you, have, if you ever have one of those spreaders, I have a handheld spreader, and I use it for fertilizer and grass seed, and you, you wind this thing up, and it disperses and scatters seed or fertilizer. And that's exactly what God had done with the Christians during this time. Believers are... God's seed, and he's going to plant them where he wills. Sometimes, as we see in the book of Acts, God uses persecution to scatter the seed. And that's exactly what God was doing in the first century. And so Peter is writing this particular letter around the year 64 A.D., just before uh, Nero burned Rome, and the great persecution started during that, that time in the late 60s. So Peter's writing before that time period because if you know anything about Peter, Peter was killed by Emperor Nero. He was crucified. And so Peter's writing before that time, of course, somewhere around the year 64. And he has two important questions that he's desiring to ask and answer here for us. 
and these are applicable for us today as well, by the, by the way, not just for the dispersion, not just for these Christians who are being persecuted. And here's the two questions that we're going to look at today. Very simple, but I hope it'll be helpful to you. So number one, why do Christians suffer? And then the second one we'll look at, and we'll spend more time on the second one, is this. What should suffering Christians do? So let's look at the first one. Why do Christians suffer? Why do Christians suffer? Well, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us at least two reasons in this wonderful little book. And he says, first of all, because God has chosen Christians to be a special people. Christians are God's special people. And you might ask, well, why are they special? What makes them special? And even here in the first chapter, we see, number one, it's because Christians are holy. Christians are holy. Now, you need to understand what that word holy means. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart, specifically being set apart from sin unto God. Let's have a look in... We'll start in chapter 2, actually. Look at chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By the way, we'll stop there. But notice that God has done this. God is the subject. He's the one who is, who is acting here. And notice, we were not His people, but then what did God do? He made us His people. So unlike this bad philosophy that's floating around, the Bible clearly tells us not all people are God's children. You have to be adopted by God in order to get into his family. So it is not true to say that all people of the earth are God's children. That's not true. But he makes us his people. And, and now that we have been made holy, the Bible says we're called to live lives of holiness. God sets us apart. We are unique, we're distinct, we're special, if you will. And so look what the Bible now says in chapter 1, verse 13. Verse 13, notice it starts with a therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in your Bible, you ought to be asking, what is that therefore? Well, we'll look at the previous context in a moment. But notice there's something you and I must do. True believers, Christians must do. Verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, now here's the command, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Verse 16 is a quote coming from the book of Leviticus. Look at that. Because it says, Since it is written, you shall be holy. Why? Why are you to be set apart, unique and distinct? Because God is 
holy. And his children ought to act and look like him. So our holiness combines this idea of being set apart and as well as this idea where you are being made into the image of Christ. There's this Christ-like purity that is worked in us by God's grace. And so God has loved us by setting us apart as His own people, and He's declared us perfectly pure in Christ. In other words, He's made us holy. But then He, then he calls us to live a life that is set apart. So how do you do that? You reflect God's holy character. And this means that we live our lives in allegiance to Him. We, we live in reverent fear of Him. Why? Because God is your audience. God is the one whom you play for. He's the one whom you live for. He is your audience. So we see that Christians are holy, and, and that is part of being His special people. But there's a second point we see in this book. Christians are strange. Christians are strange. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't mean strange as in, you know, like the, you know, there, there's one way of thinking of strange. It almost has a double meaning, that word, okay? We don't mean like the, the really super weird, awkward kind of strange. But there's this strange in the fact that Christians are different from the world. And if you're trying to live a holy life, you're, you're set apart unto God, the world is going to think you're strange. If you don't believe me, just talk to them. Talk to, to unbelievers. Tell them what the Bible says. <laughs> I've done that several times this week to my unbelieving workmates, and they think I'm strange. They do. And, and so this means that you're going to be different from them, and so you should be. If you're not... Well, you ought to be concerned. Throughout this book, Christians are called exiles. Some Bible translations say that we are strangers. Even in the very first verse, as we just looked at, Peter says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter's letter goes on to show us what the world thinks of Christians in chapter 4, verse 2. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Here is what the world thinks of Christians. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Well, what do they want to do? Well, it says living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, Orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You ever notice that? You ever have an unsaved person invite you to their drunken orgies, to their parties, to their house, or to the bar, or the pub? And you don't go along, and they wonder, what's wrong with you? Ever had it happen? Happened to me many times. It's actually a good opportunity to tell them, why am I so different from them? Now, do you know the main reason our culture thinks Christians are strange? 
the main reason is Christians have an allegiance to someone they don't know. And by the, the one I, they don't know, I'm referring, of course, to Jesus Christ. The world doesn't know Jesus, therefore they look at a Christian who has this incredible allegiance to Jesus, and they can't figure it out. I don't know this person. Why do they love Jesus so much? Why do they care about what he says, what he did? So unbelievers don't know Jesus, and so they, they just can't figure out why a Christian loves him so much. They find that strange. Well, there's another reason why Christians suffer. Why do Christians suffer? Number two, because God's called Christians to participate in Christ's sufferings. It's actually a calling, according to Peter. And Peter says our suffering and our persecution should not surprise us. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. It's not something to be surprised about. You you should expect it. Because Peter says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you see that? So don't be surprised if you're put in prison or people mock you or they make fun of you or they throw things at your house or you know, whatever whatever they might do, right? Don't be surprised. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, suffered rejection when he was in this world. And of course, the world persecuted persecutes Christ's followers as it persecuted Christ. Jesus said it would happen, so we should expect it. In fact, our suffering for his name is how we actually participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's what the next verse says. Look at verse 13. We're exhorted here to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, please listen carefully, because in the most important sense, Christ's sufferings were unique. In other words, what Christ went through is something that you and I cannot possibly imagine, and and we will never go through. Okay, because, because he's God, you and I can't suffer the same way that Jesus did when he was here. And so the Bible says he died for our sins. He didn't die for, for his own sins. He, um, he died for our sins. Now, that's, that's something that makes him unique. Christ was also a substitute. He bore God's punishment for everybody who would ever repent and believe in him. But in a secondary sense, please understand that Peter, here's a calling here. He's seeing an example in Jesus' sufferings. And he talks about that in chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So my friends, do not be surprised by suffering. Suffering is actually God's call on your life. 
suffering is God's will for Christians. Okay? You need to understand that. We see that many, many books of the Bible talk about that, doesn't it? But suffering's not the only thing the future contains for Christ's followers. Okay? Uh, I don't want to just be doom and gloom here, okay? You need to understand, Christ may be our example in suffering, but there's some good news. Christ is also our example in vindication. One day we will be vindicated. In other words, yes, there's a lot of bad things that, that, that might happen to us here on this earth, but this earth isn't everything. Now, please don't miss this. Our rejection is a temporary human verdict. It's not final. It's not from God. And so when that workmate attacks you and mocks you and makes fun of you, that is a human verdict. That's not God doing that, and it's not final. And in that, I I can take some comfort. In the end, we're going to be saved through Christ's own vindication. Just as he was, we too will be. And look what Peter promises in chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Isn't that a beautiful phrase there? He might bring us to God. That's vindication. In this text here, we see Noah is also presented as an example of one who was vindicated. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter gives Noah as an example, but the greatest example, of course, is Jesus Christ. And so, my friend, if you struggle in the face of opposition, which that's normal in our flesh, to struggle in the face of opposition, then what do you need to do? You need to look to Christ. See how God vindicates those who truly follow Him. So those are a couple of reasons why Christians suffer. Now you might be asking, okay, that's that's great, I know that, but what do I do about it? (laughs) All right? What do I do about this opposition? What should suffering Christians do? Well, Peter is going to provide at least seven answers. I have found seven answers in the text that Peter gives of what should suffering Christians do. Well, number one, be living in hope. Be living in hope. And by the way, when we read this text in chapter 1, you're going to see the word hope. That just means it's an expectant assurance. It's not a, well, I hope this is going to happen. No, this is something where you're expecting it. You know this is true. It's reality. 
And in this reality, we can live because we know God, or at least we should know God. So look what Peter, of all the things he could have started to tell suffering Christians, he starts with this, be living in hope. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We'll stop there for now, but there's some bad news here then. If you think of the other side here, sadly unsaved people are without hope. They don't understand what Peter's talking about. But then on the other hand, a believer has a living hope. Why? Notice it's a living hope. It's not dead. And Why is it living? Because Jesus is alive. He arose from the grave. Because he's a living Savior, we have a living hope. That is, if Christ is your hope, then you have a living hope. In the text, we also see the Christian doesn't work for this hope. You can't do anything to earn and merit this hope. It said, Peter says we are born again into this living hope. This hope is not only a living hope, by the way. According to verses 4 and 5, notice... It's a lasting hope. It lasts. It's not temporary. It's reserved in heaven. And the beauty of that is, as Peter says, when something's reserved in heaven, think about this, my friends, it's not going to decay. It's not affected by a stock market. It's not affected by anything that we see on this earth. It will never be defiled. It will never be stolen. It will never decay. It will never lose its beauty. Never. Because it's kept in heaven by God. 
But not only is this hope reserved in heaven, notice also in our text it says that the believer is also guarded by the Lord. Not only is your inheritance reserved and guarded, but you, my friend, are guarded by the creator of the universe. We are kept by God's power because of the faith that we place in Him. So I ask you then, where is your trust? If it's not in Jesus, then you're in trouble. See, eternal security is not based on the faith of men, but eternal security is based on the faithfulness of God. The believer is saved, but the Bible also says, You are being saved daily. It's a process where you're being set apart from your sin. But the good news is one day you will be ultimately glorified, and that means you're going to be saved completely when Christ returns. As you know, you're you're continuing to fight sin every day of your life. But one day the curse of sin will be removed, and when you see King Jesus, you will be made like him. So the completion of our faith will be the completed salvation of the believer, verse 9 says. And you know what that means? You will inherit a new body. It means that pain that you suffer now will be gone. Bad eyesight, gone. That bad back, gone. Your your forgetful memory, gone. everything that you find frustrating now about your body will be gone because God's going to give you a new one, a new body that will not decay and won't have the problems that you have now. I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait. That's, That's one of those beauties of our inheritance yet to come. So Peter exhorts us here to, did you do what? To look to this hope. Look to this hope. And number two, he says, be holy. What should suffering Christians do? Be holy. Look what he says in verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. My friends, the blessed hope should have an effect on us. The hope that we read about it up there in verses 3 through 12. That blessed hope ought to make us live 
holy lives. And of course, I hope you understand, holy doesn't mean some sort of sinless perfection, because the reality is, my friends, you and I cannot attain sinless perfection in this life. That's impossible. So that can't be what it talk, it's talking about. But it, this be holy means you're set apart. You're separated unto God for Him, for His purposes. And so if we're God's children, you know what that means? It means you and I ought to be like our Father. You ever heard that phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? <laughs> there is a sense physically that that is true. But we, we might talk about in relation to someone's children, we'll say, well, oh, he, he, he has his father's nose. Or we might look at someone and say, <clears throat> wow, she has her mother's eyes. Right? We, we talk about physical features, but what about spiritually speaking? Are you like your heavenly father? You should be. You should be. And so that means to be holy. That's what suffering Christians ought to do. Number three, Peter says to live in harmony. Live in harmony. Look what he says in verse 22. 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for his sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Salvation gives us a living hope. We saw that in verses 3 through 12. Salvation should cause a desire for us to live and be separated from this world unto God. And then along with that comes a wonderful fellowship with God's people. So the Spirit of God loves us. He brought us to Christ. Then the same Holy Spirit has planted within us a, a love for the people of God. And Peter, by the way, if you look at verse 22, he uses two different Greek words that are translated in English as love. See, love has many meanings you think about. In the, at least in English, we've got one word for love, right? But in the Greek, there's multiple ones. And one of the, those words there means a brotherly love. A brotherly love. And the other one is this divine love. It's the Greek word agape. It's the love that God has. It's an unconditional love. It's not based on what what someone else does. So we see here the Christian possesses a brotherly love, a phileo kind of a love, but he needs to have a love for others the way that God loves him. And so, yes, you need brotherly love, but you also need this divine love. God exhorts you, he commands you to have this kind of love for one another. You see, even unsaved people can show brotherly love, but it takes someone who's a Christian, someone who is controlled by the Holy Spirit to have this kind of divine agape love for someone. See, we know based on Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is 
one of the aspects of that it says is love. See, that's not something you can just manifest and, and work up on your own. It's a work of the Spirit of God in you. And so Christian harmony then ends up being a blessing when you're living in harmony with one another. See, you're a blessing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You end up being a blessing to the church. You're a blessing to other believers. You say, well, how is harmony possible? Well, this text tells us if every believer is obeying the Word of God, in other words, the Bible, and you're practicing love, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be harmony. You're going to be all on the same page, so to speak. It's, it's, like, it's like an orchestra. If they're looking at the conductor, and they're all on the same page, reading the same music, looking and being directed by the conductor, guess what? There'll be harmony. There'll be unity. But imagine a, an orchestra where people have all kinds of different sheets of music, <laughs> and they're all looking at different, wherever they want, and not paying any attention to the director. They're all doing their own thing. Can you imagine what that would sound like? Everybody would, would, would leave. They wouldn't want to listen to that mess because it's disunity. There's no harmony. And that's the same as, as it is in a family, in a church. We all have to look to Jesus Christ. We all have to be on the same page, the Bible, following what the Bible says, looking to Christ, see, seeing what he's instructing us to do and doing it. And you know when, you, when that happens, there's harmony. But Peter goes on to tell us what should suffering Christians do. He's, number four, he says, be a witness. Be a witness. Peter tells us to witness to the non-Christians, even the ones who persecute us. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter goes on to instruct us to desire the good of those who persecute us. Does that not sound like Jesus' teaching? Where did he get that from? He didn't make that up. He got that from Jesus. That's exactly something he learned from Jesus. So look what he says in chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23, he, he says, When he, that's Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter instructs us to not attack our persecutor, but to love them and to witness to them. Tell them the truth. By the way, Peter knew firsthand the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, did he not? Peter was a denier of Jesus Christ. He knew how good Christ could be to him, someone who had denied him three times. 
and said, I don't know that man. We also must remember how good God has been to us because we have deserted him. We've all deserted him. We've all denied Christ. And yet he responded with incredible love to us. How then, think about this, how then can we be unloving to someone who mocks us and someone who persecutes us? If we do that, then we forget the grace of God that he has bestowed on us. See, the Bible says we're not called to withdraw from this world. Jesus said, be in the world, just don't be of it. In other words, you're like a ship sitting in the water. The, the, water's, the, the water's not in the ship. If it is, then it sinks, right? Jesus says, be a ship in the water, just don't let the water inside you. So we're called to love as Jesus loves. Well, what should suffering Christians do? Peter gives us another points in chapter 3 he says submit under that suffering submit under suffering look what he says in chapter 3 verse 9 chapter 3 verse 9 do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Let's stop there. Do you see how Peter is saying, submit under suffering? If it comes your way, submit to it. See that it's not something I'm to be surprised about. See it as, it's God's will for my life. I have been called to this. To suffer as Christ suffered. So how should Christians act when persecuted by the world? Well, in verse 9, Peter says, you're to be a blessing. You are to be a blessing. We conquer hate by showing love. And then when you do that, you let God God deal with it, right? You leave it in God's hands. Let God do the rest. In verses 10 and 11, Peter says, keep clean. Keep clean. You don't join them in their evil. You abstain from their evil. You're to be Christ-like. And then number three, remember that God is watching. God's watching. He sees. He knows. As verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, he, He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He, he's all-powerful. He sees what's going on. He sees our problems. He hears our prayers, our cries to Him. He knows how to deal with those who are persecuted as well as the ones who are doing the persecution. So, what's our tendency, though? We want to complain. We want to grumble and complain. But rather than complain, we are exhorted to rejoice when we're suffering for His name's sake. And number six, what should suffering Christians do? 
verse 15, we are commanded. This is a command to honor Christ as Lord. Honor Christ as Lord. Look, look at the command in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What does it mean to honor Christ as Lord? That's the command. It means that you put Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart. He is the one who reigns supreme over your life. And by the way, if He does control your life, then the result is you will always have an answer when people ask about the hope that is in you. You ever found yourself in a situation where somebody asks about the hope that's in you? And you have an answer. And sometimes you're, you're, you're surprised by your answer. <laughs> happens to me all the time. I'm like, wow, where did that answer come from? I, I, I know, the Holy Spirit gave me that answer. That's, that's it. It's, it's not me. I'm not, I'm not smart. That's not why I came up with that amazing answer. And it's a beautiful thing when you see the Holy Spirit working in you and through you and, and giving answers to people who need those answers. And so in verse 15, we see a surrendered heart. In verse 16, we see a good conscience. It's amazing how those two go together. A good conscience will come from a surrendered heart, and together a surrendered heart and a good conscience will then give peace when people accuse us falsely. The last thing Peter says for suffering Christians who need exhortation and need instruction in what to do, he says, be loving. Be loving. We are to be loving toward each other, the Bible says. And this is particularly difficult and important when the church is suffering. You know how that is. If you're under stress, it's hard to be godly, isn't it? Right? Admit it. I know I'm not the only one like this. <laughs> Every one of us, we know when, when stress comes our way, difficulty comes our way, it is difficult to be godly. Very difficult. And stress afflicts the church as it was during Peter's time, and it's coming from the outside. You know what ends up happening is stress on the inside can follow. Look what Peter writes about in chapter 4. This is very good instruction. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping or keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
And then look at verse 19. This is precious. Verse 19, notice what Peter says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. By the way, Peter did exactly what he wrote about here. He understood what he was talking about and he practiced what he preached. See, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but based on early history and the sources that go back to the first century, we, we know that Peter died for his faith. He was a martyr for Jesus Christ. In fact, we know that Peter had to suffer seeing his wife nailed on a cross. and suffer. She suffered as well, right before his very eyes. And according to the early historians, they, Peter's exhortation for his dear wife was, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. I'm sure that would have been comforting and encouraging. And after he saw his wife crucified before his eyes, Peter was crucified in Rome. Nero didn't like the Christians. He blamed the Christians, although he himself burned Rome down. And so he, he went on this all-out attack against the Christians. Eventually he got Peter, and Peter was crucified, but according to history it says Peter recognized he wasn't worthy to be crucified on a cross as Jesus was, so he said, please, turn me upside down. And history says Peter was nailed to the cross and died as a martyr for Jesus Christ, upside down. Peter understood this. He lived it out and died as a martyr living for Jesus Christ. So my friends, we are to commit to these things, Peter says. You say, well, what things? What am I to commit to? My friend, you must commit to live for God. For God, His will, and His purposes. Also, trust your life to God. He is the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in control. He is the one who knows what's happening to you. All the minute details, He knows about them. And then we must faithfully continue on. Yes, life might be difficult at times. It will. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be, you're not always going to be healthy. But we have to faithfully continue on. And stay the course. Stay the course. The course that God's laid out for you. Stay on that all the way to the very end. Be faithful. Don't ever divert from that course. And do as Peter says here. Commit yourself to the Creator. Commit yourself to the Creator. Will you do that? Have you done that? If you have, keep doing that. By God's grace. Let's pray.